Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 476 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened in the world of NXT and AEW, a loaded week for both brands. NXT, of course, coming off Great American Bash, a successful but perhaps not as good as Battleground premium live event for them. AEW, I'll say beginning their build, I guess, is probably the best way to put it, for the all-in and all-out combination weekend coming up at the end of the month. So, a ton to discuss. The Silver King also happens to be limited for time today. So we're not wasting any time off the top. Let me remind you that this podcast is all about Defy. What that means is we hope you will leave us five-star ratings across Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Even more importantly, if you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we will read it live right here on the show. Please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And also remember, I happen to love the number... I hope you do as well, because for five bucks a month, you can become an official getting overhead. You get bonus audio news posts and that five dollars a month or fifty dollars for the year supports the continued existence of this program. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. One more item before we fully get into today's show. I want to go over our WWE SummerSlam plans. We already have our SummerSlam ultimate preview in the podcast feed. Be sure not to miss that vintage Chris Vanini and your boy, the Silver King, break down every single match on the card with predictions, analysis on how things are going to go both at SummerSlam and in the future, and plus a lot more from SmackDown and Raw this past week in WWE. On Saturday, earlier in the evening, we will have your WWE SummerSlam live pre-show on Twitter Spaces. Again, follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Another good reason to follow us is we will have pre- and post-show polls posted That way, that was a big tongue twister right there. Uh, But that way, you guys can let us know your pre-show expectation grades and your post-show grades, and we make those grades part of our WWE SummerSlam Instant Reaction Podcast coming Saturday night as soon as that show ends. Every reason to follow us on Twitter, at Getting Overcast, and every reason to listen to our ultimate preview and instant reaction, one already in your feed, the other coming up late Saturday night. With that said, we're going to get into NXT and AEW for this week. A reminder, we do have timestamps in the episode descriptions, so you can always bounce around uh, if you have time to listen to one now, the other later, whatever the case might be. Uh, Just remember to check the episode description for those timestamps. Now, we are going to start with NXT today, mostly because, look, it's a two-hour show, and with AEW right now, we're talking about five hours of content that we're going to be reviewing every week. So it's much easier to knock out NXT and then spend as much time as we want, really, on AEW through the end of the program. So Carmelo Hayes and Trick Williams were chopping it up backstage. And I'm noticing now, before I even say this, because I did have some great American Bash uh, fallout notes. There's only three, so but one of them involves Trick Williams. And that is that Trick might be the best corner man in professional wrestling. I don't so much mean like a manager like Paul Heyman or anything like that, but a dude who has another dude's back or a chick who has another chick's back. I don't know that there's anyone right now who I would have said coming out of Sunday night show would be better at that than Trick Williams. He was fantastic. 
I also, another note from Great American Bash, I would pay to just see Wesley and Rhea Ripley fight one-on-one. You know, what happened on that show is he kicked out of one of the most protected finishers in the entire company, and it was him going through a table. Now, there was the delay, of course, of getting him up into the ring and then the pinfall, and whenever there's a delay, it's not exactly kicking out of the finisher. It's not the same, but it was awesome seeing them go together, and I mean, I'd even have her beat him. I know, like, some Silver King, you're crazy. That's stupid. He's been built up so well in NXT. I don't know, man. The idea of like Rhea Ripley's bigger than him and they seem to have really good chemistry together. I was interested in seeing that match coming out of Great American Bash. I don't think it'll happen. Uh, but those were really it. That's all I had. And then I did rewatch uh, Carmelo Hayes against Isla Dragunov. I'm sticking with 4.75 stars A+. I thought it was an incredible match. It was. I it, To be a five-star match, you have to be perfect, uh, at least on this show. Maybe not other shows and other uh, journalists out there. But here, you got to be perfect. And I did not feel... Um, that was perfect, but man, it was freaking great. So even if you, you know, don't watch NXT and you listen to our recaps just to get an idea of what's going on, uh, if you have not watched that match, Carmelo Hayes and Isla Dragunov, go to your Peacock, open up Great American Bash, watch the main event. If if you do nothing else, watch that match. Anyway, let's get into NXT. As I said, Melo and Trick were chopping it up backstage. Melo was thankful that Trick motivated him, but sorry that he took that stray shot from Dragunov in that match. Then Williams got serious, saying he wanted to get his own bag and he doesn't want to be seen as a sidekick. Trick wanted to slay the dragon. Melo respected that. Williams clarified, this isn't a breakup. I just want to prove myself on my own. It was an interesting way to play it. As long as Trick is not going after Melo's title, I don't see the harm in them supporting each other as equals, where Melo could be in Trick's corner, just like Trick is in his corner. So it was a bit confusing to me as to why in kayfabe, Trick felt like he needed to go completely on his own. What what he should have been saying, at least for me, is I need to be an equal focus like you are. So you have a match, I have a match. You know, like one week it's me, one week it's you. Uh, You know, Melo doesn't seem to, because he's a babyface, he doesn't seem to have the ego to the level where he would want to hold Trick down. So that wouldn't have been a problem for this version of the Melo character. Heal Melo, maybe that would have been a problem, but... You know, so that, you know, it it hit me right in a, in the sense that Trick's going to get consistent singles work. They're not breaking up a duo and they do need to stay together for years into their eventual main roster run. Yet this is going to be a way for Trick to kind of break off on his own, and do some of his own stuff. I just would have kept them together while that happened. I don't see why they need to be separated. Maybe I just don't want to see him go. Maybe I like the friendship. Who knows? Uh, after the main event, Dragunov got a promo package blaming Williams for being the lone reason he is not NXT champion. He promised his retribution begins next week, saying he won't stop until Trick is entirely terminated. It was a really eye-catching way to end the show. The visuals were awesome. And it was a great cliffhanger for next week, given that we didn't see Isla at any other point on the program. Mello was on his phone in between these. When Wesley stormed into the locker room, he threw a fit. Mello told Wes, stop with the self-pity. Wes was infuriated about losing three weeks in a row, saying Hayes is killing it while he's fighting for his life. Melo said he got his ass kicked from Dragunov. He can barely breathe. Wes doesn't know what it takes to be a champion of his caliber. Noam Dar and Oro Mensa interrupted. They were crowing about the Heritage Cup. They all started shoving each other, and that obviously led to a match. I just kind of thought it was weird for Wes to be such a crybaby here when that is not at all his gimmick. Quite the opposite, in fact. He also had no realistic reason 
for being angry at Melo. I know you can be angry and someone gets in your way and you, you take it out on them. I get that's what they were doing. But his direct anger at Melo continued for like two hours. It's one thing if it happens in a brief moment, but stretched out over an entire program, you know, again, I thought it was a little bit odd. I will point out that we speculated on the instant reaction show for Great American Bash that Wes might be moved to the main event picture and feuding with Mello for his title. And it sure as shit seems like that is what's happening here. So Mello and Wes fought Dar and Mensa. The metaphor women twice distracted and attempted to interfere. The referee chose to do nothing about it. Uh, Wes decided not to mess with Chikara Jackson. And instead he jumped over her or kind of threw her. She moved away with a clean corkscrew on Dar, forcing her to get out of the ring eventually after that. Wes started a cardiac kick and Mello nonsensically pushed Dar out of the way, taking the friendly fire. He wasn't even doing some type of like offense, like putting him in a headlock or doing something that would have made sense. Instead, he literally just pushed him out of the way like you would a tag team partner to take a move. It was weird. Wes was obviously surprised. He ate a pair of kicks from Dar and Mensa and the heels won. Wes got up in Miller's grill after the bell. Hayes walked away from him because he just thought he was being ridiculous. So the match was running hot, but I got to tell you, the finish was asinine. Whoever was the agent here needed to come up with something that made a lot more sense for Wes to accidentally catch Mello blind because it literally looked like Hayes was sacrificing himself for Dar. All you needed to do was ha- like have Mello put Dar in a headlock. Dar slips out of it. And then West does the kick and nails him in the face. It's 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 really not hard to come up with reasons or ways to do that situation. Maybe there was a botch and they were supposed to be in something. And Mello at the last minute was like, I got to take this kick. So he just shoved him. But it looked like he saved Dar and took the kick because he knew it was coming. It, there's no other way to put it. Also, you could see this coming from a mile away based on how the storyline was progressing. Now, look, NXT has been hitting well for months now. This was just not its brightest moment. Unfortunate that it came in the top storyline on Tuesday. I'm massively interested in Mello and Wes. But as of right now, the way it started, this angle is not at all hitting for me, mostly because it's totally out of character for Wes. Uh, Tyler Bate later approached Metaphor, who were celebrating their victory. Bate was talking about going on a meditation retreat. He basically worked Metaphor into agreeing to a match with Dar next week for the quote unquote Heritage Cup. So not the real cop. They've made that very clear on TV, which is a little bit different than what the situation with AEW is. Um, we'll talk about that, obviously, later in the show. But, you know, quote unquote, not really the cop, whatever. Uh, I'm not a massive fan of the meditation gimmick that Bate is doing. It worked well here just as a direct counter to the extreme energy of metaphor, which I got to tell you is becoming more and more entertaining by the week. I liked it when they first came together and I just like it more and more each week, maybe because for some way it reduces Noam Dar. Like if you just get full Noam Dar, 100% Noam Dar in the ring, great. But like on the mic, cutting his promos, it can get really annoying. And I know that's part of his character, but it, it can. Adding the other three elements there with him, it just like reduces him enough where It's tolerable, even though he's supposed to be intolerable in kayfabe, if that makes sense. Uh, Rhea Ripley and Dominic Mysterio came out bragging about Dom's title retention. Dom called himself the greatest luchador has ever lived. So Dragon Lee came out saying he wouldn't let Dom disrespect the fans or his heritage. He said no one actually believes that, including Dom himself, because Rey, as everyone knows, is the GOAT. Dragon said Rhea has Dom's cojones in her purse. Ripley snapped back that his are bigger. So Dragon challenged him for the title next week. 
Rhea whispered to Dom, and he accepted, saying Ripley would be in his corner. Dragon then threw it to the Titantron, where just so happened that Rey Mysterio was there, saying he would be on NXT next week in the corner of Dragon Lee, a man he respects, and the future of Lucha Libre. Then he promised Dragon would take the North American title. You know, we've spent two weeks here talking about this eventually happening. I kind of assumed we were getting it at no mercy. It's a huge show. Ray appearing would help sell tickets. So I was definitely surprised to see that it's coming next week on television. You would think this leads to a title change. Otherwise, that would be Dom getting over on a guy in Dragon who really hasn't won much, despite the fact that they are trying to accelerate him to the main roster. This was a solid but unspectacular segment. Dragon came to NXT largely to work on his promos, and he's definitely doing well with English. I'm extremely curious to see if this whole Dom title angle wraps up next week now, because again, I really thought it was going to last like all the way through to No Mercy. That said, if it does last only until next week, and they do decide to put the World Heavyweight Championship on Finn Balor, then on Monday night, at least for one night, we could see all four members of Judgment Day with gold slash hardware. Of course, the Money in the Bank briefcase for Damian Priest. Later in the parking lot, Axiom talked shit to Dom. He mistook Axiom for Dragon, asking who the hell he is. Mustafa Ali stormed between them, ready to demand a rematch because he did not get pinned on Sunday, but Axiom kept interrupting him. Ali then went off on Axiom, uh, saying that, You don't know what it means to feel disrespected. I've been disrespected here in WWE for the last six years, and you, Axiom, should be focusing on something else because the North American title is mine. Fuck yeah, Ali. Killer promo. Also, I love the gimmick of this guy like trying to do the right thing, but people constantly force him to show edge and aggression and grittiness. It's a great, great situation that Ali is in right now. And two other elements of this worked as well for me. Dom mistaking Axiom for Dragon Lee just because he had a mask. I thought that was hilarious. And I also think there was some point in the ring, maybe, where Rhea referred to Dragon Lee as Batman just because of the way his mask looked. (laughs) They were on point. This whole thing was great. It really was. But Ali stole the show in the segment in the parking lot that came way after the main segment. So I love the direction they're going with Ali and well-deserved for him to get a real character for the first time in a long time in WWE. Thea Hale was backstage with Chase U, upset that she gave it all she had, yet still lost, pointing out she didn't submit, and she actually showed a bit of anger, not too much, at Andre Chase for throwing in the towel. Baron Corbin tried to cut off their corniness. Chase shot back that Corbin got thrown all over the building. Corbin said, if Gable Stevenson shows up again, he'll finish it. He actually said, if that guy shows up again. Gable Stevenson's name, I do not believe, was mentioned on the entire episode of NXT. Then Corbin talked down to Thea like a little girl, saying she tried, failed, peaked Sunday, and should go home. Chase called him a bleeped piece of shit, obviously, and it led to a match. Hale also shook off Chase, trying to pat her on the shoulder to make her feel better. I enjoyed the character development with Hale and Chase, and Corbin being such a prick to her actually came across well for a guy who needs to improve like his believability when he speaks and You believed he was being an asshole to her in this segment. So Chase and Corbin fought. Hale acted depressed, walking out with Chase U for the match. She also had a towel in her hand. Corbin dominated Chase as fans chanted, throw the towel. He hit a spine buster, sorry, and a single leg crab with Hale throwing in the towel. But Corbin caught it in the air and threw it back outside. I love that. 
Hale stormed off. Corbin then hit end of days for the win. So he certainly didn't get the reception in the performance center that he did in Texas going against Stevenson. Chase actually got jeers at times, though, because of Hale. It wasn't my favorite thing on the show. It just felt a little bit heavy handed. But I did like Corbin's promo backstage early. And the angle does make sense for Thea, especially given her age. Teenagers throw fits over misunderstandings. That is nothing out of left field. I just wish it was not as heavy handed as it was. Uh, Braun Breaker taunted Von Wagner in a promo package, saying Wagner's story was touching, but he's a nobody, just like his father was. He called Von soft and dared him to come find him, saying he'd make him look worse than he did as a kid in that photo that we've seen if he tried to go after him. This was the single best promo Braun has cut in his WWE career, full stop. Knocked it out of the damn park. He is a million times better as a heel, and he has completely found his footing from a character standpoint. I know this was probably their plan to make him heal and do all this, but I got to tell you, when we were talking about this during his title run about six months before it actually happened, this was exactly what I wanted from him. This is what I thought could be the type of gimmick to get him over. He got over. He is getting over right now. Roxanne Perez did a video diary of her trip to Texas for Great American Bash. The parts with her family were really cute. And she showed a lot of confidence at the end following her win over Blair Davenport. There just really wasn't much to it. I presume she stayed behind in Texas with her family for the week. And that's why she wasn't live on NXT. Tiffany Stratton did a get ready with me TikTok doing her makeup while talking about defending her title. She promised to show up next week and make NXT fabulous. There's not really much analysis I can do, but I kind of want to be clear. I'm not judging her based on her appearance, but objectively, she looked really good with like the more natural makeup that she had at the start of this video rather than like the caked on extra stuff. I mostly say that just because there's really nothing else to say about a 30 second TikTok video. And it was a TikTok video about her doing her makeup. So there you go. Um, No harm with her. I would say not being on this edition of NXT. Plenty else happened and there were plenty of women on the show. It would have been nice, though, to see the champion, but it's fine. We got the video and we'll see her next week. D'Angelo family pulled up in the parking lot to open NXT only to immediately get attacked and laid out by Gallus. In the training room, Tony D said they were going to hand Gallus' asses to them and challenge them to return to the arena. Stax pointed out, yo, Tony, it's going to be three on two. This doesn't make any sense. Tony said he would make a call to, quote, you know who, to see if he'll get their back. D'Angelo later on the phone said business is business, and if he got help from this guy, they would be even Steven. So right there, you had to know who it was. But even later, we saw a guy in really nice shoes get out of a car, and it appeared obvious at that point that it was Santos Escobar, and indeed it was. So D'Angelo family and Escobar against Gallus, this main evented. Vic Joseph was a savage on commentary all night, but he had a great line here about Booker T's DoorDash order that really popped me. Escobar hit a top rope hurricanrana on Mark Coffey. The family hit bada bing, bada boom for the win. The crowd was hype as hell for Santos for literally the entirety of his appearance. It was a really nice surprise for him to be there and really smart in kayfabe playing into their old feud. They even all hugged after the bell in a really great babyface moment to close the show. Fans chanted, welcome home. It was awesome. I'm really curious to see the direction that NXT takes the D'Angelo's and Gallus now that their feud is presumably over. Obviously, the D'Angelo's are champions, so they're going to be defending the title. What are you going to do with Gallus? And what are you going to do with the D'Angelo's in terms of the people that are going to be challenging them? I could maybe see metaphor, uh, the guys, obviously. I I don't know, though, what else they do because there's a lot of babyface teams on the brand right now. The scheduled uh, schism segment, 
that's another tongue twister, uh, was a penultimate segment on the show. They talked and talked for a while with Ava having each of the masked men step forward to take their face covering off one by one. The first two were regular dudes. The third was Ikaminjiro, who popped to the crowd. He took off his like cloak or whatever and showed his jacket. Everyone loved it. The fourth was a larger black man. And Diad go, well, we clearly know it's not you. So, so I, I thought that was kind of funny. And then the last two, of course, they said, oh, we know who these guys are. It has to be them. So they drag them down and remove their masks only for it to be not the Creed brothers, who were instead on the Titantron in front of a green screen. The Creeds played with them. They clowned around. They changed the green screen to different locations, promising they were nowhere close to Orlando. Dyad nearly lost it on the other dudes in the ring, but Joe Gacy stopped them. He made a call out to the Schism brothers to find the Creeds and bring them in. Now, the positive here was the Creeds showed a ton of personality beyond their normal, you know, we're real wrestler and brother types of gimmick, right? Like that's what they've done their entire NXT run. They showed a lot of personality. They were naturals doing the sticky comedy stuff. The negative, though, was that the segment was rough it was kind of an eye roll. And while they were able to do the shticky comedy stuff, it wasn't actually funny. And I just thought the conceptualization of the entire thing was kind of boring. It would have been maybe cooler if they were in the schisms like Lair or somewhere clearly where they're in Orlando, but you know they're not obviously at the Performance Center. Or if they had pre-taped that, for example, and then showed up and pulled them out of the ring or did, you know, in schism masks, pulled them out of the ring and beat the shit out of them outside. It just seemed like a long way to go for something that for me didn't deliver that well. And again, the whole loser leaves town stipulation. Why are they still in town? Why are they still appearing on the show? Maybe the maybe the whole deal is that schism says, hey, you know what? That loser leaves town thing. Who cares? We just want to fight you again. Like and then it's just a shrug. The entire thing's a shrug. Lyra Valkyria fought JC Jane. JC pulled off Vic Joseph's headset to cut a quick promo on Lyra before attacking her during her entrance with a cannonball senton off the apron. Valkyria got most of the offense and hit a nice Northern Light suplex bridge. Then she hit a roundhouse kick and her simple splash for the victory in over nine minutes. It was almost 10. Lyra was definitely the right winner given the story they've been telling with Rhea Ripley, but JC looked good even in defeat here. It's the same comment I always make with Lyra, and I know you guys might get tired of hearing it. A roundhouse kick and a falling splash are not modern finishers. She is way, way too talented to have such simple signature and finisher moves. Simple as that. Um, Eddie Thorpe fought Dijak. This was a hard hitting, as you would expect. Dijak had a huge boot on Thorpe through the ropes outside and then a discus boot to the face inside for the win. Even though Dijak is definitely higher on the card than Thorpe, it was surprising to see him beat Thorpe this easily given Eddie won that awesome NXT underground match against Damon Kemp, this really should have been two or three times as long as it was with Thorpe looking really strong in defeat. Instead, Dijak just kind of mowed him down, which didn't make much sense given they spent so much time on that underground storyline. Ulisa Leon and Valentina Ferois fought Electra Lopez and Lola Vice. This was a regular match debut for Vice, former MMA fighter Valerie Loreda. Uh, the faces did an assisted rebound moonsault. Leon also hit a Falcon arrow for a broken fall, but got distracted as Vice hit a beautiful turn kick right to her head for the win. Vice easily stood out from Lopez here, despite being much less experienced. But I was really disappointed that you have the faces coming out of a victory at Great American Bash. What did we talk about on that show? The fact that 
you know, they're really talented, but they never get a consistent push. That's what we said. And we were so happy that they won. So they come out of that and they lose to a rookie and Electra Lopez, who is barely on the show. It, I don't get the start and stop booking for them. They really should be elevated as part of the women's tag team division. They should be a top two or three team in NXT and a, a perfect team for complaint department to come down and fight because they're baby faces and complaint department can beat them. And that's, that's totally cool. You don't have Lopez and Vice beat them. You wait for the complaint department to come in a tag team title match and beat them. So look, they're underrated. It was good for Vice for sure. She looked solid for a debut and we move on. Uh, Kalani Jordan was proud of Dana Brooke for kicking Cora Jade's ass with a kendo stick last week. Dana said she saw red and liked it, and they both need to tap into being badasses by finding their killer instinct. The acting here was atrocious, but I like the concept. We later saw footage from last week of Cora losing her shit after falling to Dana in the match. She tossed all her fan mail in the locker room and said to the other women watching, good luck not having me here. I would also throw a fit if I lost to Dana Brooke, so that definitely tracked. Uh, Cora's also deleted her Twitter and her Instagram, or she's blacked it out, something like that. So she's off social media. She's walking out. People, oh my God, is she leaving WWE? Like, guys, it's clearly a television storyline. They would they would just write her off if she was actually leaving the company. So either she's getting called up to the main roster, and that is possible because she is, as last I knew, uh, dating Braun Breaker. It's possible the Braun and Vaughn feud that they're about to do is his last one. He gets called up after SummerSlam. If so and Cora goes with him, that would absolutely make sense. It's also possible she's just refreshing her character, which, what do we talk about? She needs it. It The way, what she's become, this like emo version of what she was previously, doesn't really work. Um, I liked her better as a babyface. I'll just tell you that right now. It, it's, a, it's a crutch for people to say, oh, if they turn heel, they'd be so over. I think Cora Jade's been worse as a heel than she was as a babyface. It's one of those rare, perhaps, uh, people. So I would turn her back. We'll see what they end up doing. And that really wraps up the week in NXT. I thought it was a really solid show coming out of Great American Bash to establish some new storylines. Didn't love everything that they did. You can't love it every single week. You know, there are many weeks where I say, hey, that NXT episode, pretty perfect. I mean, still, there may not be things that I completely love, but don't really disagree with the booking or anything. Here, a couple disagreements, still a solid show and a totally worthy two hours. With that, let's move to AEW. Obviously, we're going to be talking Rampage, Collision, and Dynamite, and I promise you we will not spend that much time on Rampage. Uh, Collision was a really strong show that had a lot of random matches without rhyme or reason to them, plus two big-time storyline segments, one being a segment, the other being, of course, the main event match. It just kind of feels to me like they have two to three angles per show. In this case, three. I forgot to mention there was a ladder match that opened, which was also fueled by an angle. Like they have like three per show. And then the rest is just like, we're just gonna put quality wrestling on with no storytelling. Meanwhile, Dynamite was the 200th episode. And because it was the anniversary show, they reverted back to those old exploding paint graphics, which reminded me, those are a million times better than the red, white, and blue that AEW currently uses for Dynamite. They need to completely go back to the old aesthetic. It separates them from WWE. The current Dynamite setup makes it look almost exactly like WWE. And it's just something different. It gives the entire show personality. The graphics have personality. They got to go back to that multicolor paint exploding 
whatever thing that they got to do. The only other thing I'll say about the 200th episode in general before we get into the specifics, it did feel like an anniversary episode in that there were just things that happened there that were in vacuums. And yeah, there were some there was some storyline continuation, don't get me wrong. Uh, but like even there was a women's title match on the show, we'll get to it later. It was set up on Rampage just to have a title match on the show, just to have the result that came out of that on the 200th episode. It was very clear that's what they did and why they did it, if that makes sense. So with that said, let's get into the full breakdown. We're going to start with the two big segments from Collision. First, CM Punk got mostly booze while carrying the red bag to the ring. He dapped up a guy near a negative MJF sign. Uh, he also got a decent chant. He said there's a lot of things going on in both AEW and Collision. Then he brought up wrestling at Wembley Stadium, saying we'll probably know at the end of the night some details on that. Spoiler alert, we did not. He called Ricky Starks a cheater and referred to the bag, saying he's been left holding it. Punk said he's not going to be nice anymore. When was he being nice? I don't remember that. And then he pulled out the AEW title, saying he's the real champion because he was never beaten for it. Then he spray painted a black X on it, saying it was his symbol. I thought the X should have been red because he always does the red X's. So I thought it was weird that it was black. Now, I'm going to pause here real quick. He put the X over the title. And people on the internet, oh my God, did you see that he sprayed the X over the E? That means he's going after the elite. No, it doesn't. It means he sprayed an X over the middle part of the logo and the E is the middle part of the logo. Like, that's all it is, folks. Now, I mean, could they run a punk elite storyline? We've talked about it, that if you're bringing him back, which I still disagree with them bringing him back, but uh, if you're bringing him back, that's your money storyline. Could they possibly do it? They absolutely could. This was not an indication of it. What did you want him to do? Spray the X angularly over the A or the W, <laughs> you know, or not touching the letters at all? I mean, it just wouldn't have made any sense. So yes, you spray the X over the middle and the E was in the middle. Punk reminded that he's straight edge saying that makes him, quote, better than you. And he repeated a third time that he's the real world champion. He rep he was so repetitive in this promo. It was like he would say a line, say another one, and then go back to that original line. Starks came out to interrupt Punk. Then he wanted to pretend like he didn't like come out so he could make his full entrance, which I thought was hysterical the way he did that. Starks said he did what Punk would have done in the Owen match. The title belongs to him. He's the face of collision. Punk said he'd only defend the title with a special guest referee. Starks was fine with that, given Punk has no friends unless maybe he calls someone in Stanford. Nice line. Punk agreed to the match and Tony Schiavone immediately announced it was next week which was never said by Punk. Hey, I want to fight you next week. Tony just said it's next week. Then Punk had Shivani announce the guest referee as Ricky the Dragon Steamboat to a decent reaction. So I was out Saturday night and I asked some of you to send me a timestamp on the main event match because I didn't want to miss that when I got home. I was told, I, Silver King, you absolutely have to watch this segment. It is so freaking good. And I'm not here to tell you it was lackluster or anything. However, I do feel like some of you oversold it. We've been talking about Punk playing this angle for weeks now, and everyone knew what was in the bag, so it wasn't really a shocker. Spray painting the logo, which again should have been red, was obviously not original in any way. I mean, not only did the NWO do it forever, the outcasts have been spraying everything, including I think the title at one point. Punk was also really repetitive in his promo. As I said, I guess I'm being repetitive now. He said each line at least twice, Starks was actually the most entertaining part of the entire segment, but let's not get it twisted. It was absolutely successful setting up what one expected to be two matches. Punk, Starks, 
next week, where Punk will obviously retain, I guess, this title. And then Punk MJF for the undisputed title, presumably at All Out, given the way Punk spoke. It was actually a tad disappointing for me, though, that MJF, the single most outspoken person in AEW besides Punk, was on the show. He was backstage. He didn't even address this briefly backstage. I'll deal with Phil another time. What a ridiculous statement. What an asshole. Anything he could have said. But like they just didn't do it. Also, they're promoting this match next week as a real world title match when, you know, he's not the champion. Like we can literally look at the way WWE is handling the Heritage Cup just because it's happening at the same time. The Heritage Cup with Noam Dar, they say it's not the real one. He doesn't have it. It's fake. Everyone says it's fake. So, you know, like that's what they're going with. And here, like everyone, Punk's like, this is the real world title. I'm the real world champion. And Tony Schiavone is like, okay. And Tony Khan's like, okay. And we'll give you a title match. So is this recognized now? Like for a company that was doing interim belts and all these other things, it really does not make sense if you think about it. And then you had Shivani, who is basically Tony Khan's representative on TV. He not only played along, like I just said, but he knew the special guest referee ahead of time, which means the agreement was made, the match was made, and it wasn't even Tony like in kayfabe being like, wow, this is a really interesting segment. Yeah, I'll give him a match. Why not? Like It was all set up ahead of time in kayfabe. So I just thought it could have been a lot smoother. It could have made a lot more sense, but it was perfectly solid. Again, I just wish it was more unique, less trite. And AEW really should not be sanctioning any type of match, given he's not the champion. It should just be them fighting and Punk saying, here, if you want this belt, this physical belt, then yeah, you can. I'll put it on the line. And if, if you win, it's yours. Something like that. All right. So also on collision, we had the tag team championship match. This is the one we've been waiting for. FTR against MJF and Adam Cole. There were double clothesline and FTR chance before the bell. MJF did like the worst strut I've ever seen. Uh, maybe it was purposeful. During an old school sequence, MJF sold an injured ankle landing on a leapfrog, but was totally fine moments later. Cole hit a series of signatures for near falls. The challengers hit a super kick during a tombstone on Cash Wheeler for a false finish. FTR got a superplex and a splash combo on Cole. Dax Harwood nailed MJF with a slingshot Liger bomb for another false finish. Dax was seemingly going for Panama Sunrise, only to get caught like spread eagle on the middle turnbuckle with MJF ringing his bells for a broken fall. MJF then actually saved Cole from Shatter Machine. Dax then saved Cash from Heatseeker, catching MJF in an O'Connor roll for the win. This was the first pinfall loss that MJF has taken, even though it wasn't in a singles match, since the Wardlow match, like two years ago, almost at this point, a year, year plus, like 14 months, 15 months probably. Uh, Cole shook hands with FTR after the bell. MJF pouted in the corner, crying about blowing the match. Fans chanted for MJF and Cole handed him the AEW title as MJF tried to come to terms with losing the match. Cole turned his back the opposite corner and extended his arms as MJF set up to drill him with the title with Cole saying off mic, do what you gotta do. Instead, MJF dropped the title. He pouted more. They hugged in the center of the ring to a huge pop. Then Cole raised MJF's arms with the title and they hugged again. Now look, I would have strapped them up, but in lieu of doing that, this was a strong way to book a loss. The match, I didn't think it was great. It was good. Didn't think it was great. The end was a bit disappointing with the rolling pinfall. Fine with a happenstance loss. Just wish it was stronger and more creative. Four stars and an A-. The in-match story 
and old school wrestling were fun. The post-match was excellent. MJF setting up so blatantly to use the title, relying on his natural instinct in the moment, and Cole already in the acceptance phase that a turn was coming, only for MJF and his desire for friendship to basically overcome that. I thought that was outstanding. Now, the story is most likely going to be, I have to think, that Cole has been playing MJF the entire time. I had been talking about MJF and Punk at All In, and then MJF and Cole at All Out. But what I forgot to consider, and I wrote this Saturday, these notes, I forgot to consider locations and venues. With All Out being in Chicago, one would think you would put MJF Punk in Chicago and MJF Cole in All In. The problem is, it makes way more sense to do it in the order I suggested originally if you are going to have Cole win the title. You have MJF beat Punk at All In, and then Cole's waiting in the wings. Then MJF is tired a week later. Cole uses his emotions against him, takes advantage of his empathy in their title match to ultimately win the AEW championship in Chicago. But again, you have CM Punk. So you have to have CM Punk in the title match in Chicago, even if I don't like what they're doing with the quote unquote real world title. The only other way to do it would be to have Cole beat MJF the way I just described in London and then doing Cole and Punk at All Out. That would probably be the booking if they want Punk to win the title, which let's hope they're smart enough not to do that because Punk should not be strapped up and Cole really should not be a transitional champion between MJF and Punk. That would not be a good idea, but let's see. Back to the match. I'd say it fell below my expectations only because my expectations were sky freaking high, but it was still a really worthy main event, massively entertaining. It did the second best rating for Collision since the show started like seven weeks ago and against huge competition on Saturday night. I think they cracked 700,000. It was almost the same rating as NXT. I think the demo was a little bit better, but Saturday night versus Tuesday night, I mean, you really can't compare days as I've said forever. I'm just saying it was a damn good rating given the circumstances. Plus, the profile of FTR is now through the roof given all the high quality matches they've put together over the last year and all the opponents they've beat. One of the reasons why this didn't hit for me as well from a match standpoint, it didn't live up to the Bullet Club gold match that was just a couple weeks ago. And we also never got the double clothesline, which obviously could have been a kick out even if it was delivered because it's just a double clothesline. That would have been nice. And my note here does confirm it was 14 months since MJF's last pinfall loss. I just said it in the wrong spot. Totally fine. Overall, this remains the most interesting MJF has been in this entire title reign. He definitely has my attention. One other thing, apparently after the show ended, FTR came back out. These guys all ate pizza and drank tequila together in the ring. Fans apparently loved it. I don't know. MJF has talked so much shit about FTR. Kind of sounded stupid to me. On Dynamite, MJF ended hour one talking about his ADD, saying he doesn't handle rejection well. He talked about being abused and bullied, saying that led him to become a backstabber to protect himself. MJF said being a scumbag who people hate is easy, but being vulnerable is hard. And he credited Cole with teaching him that he can be a best friend and have fan support, even if it will take him a while to learn how not to be a scumbag, repeating, I'm still a scumbag, but I'm your scumbag. And the fans love that. Cole came out putting MJF over, rousing the crowd behind MJF, saying he's actually a good guy deep down inside. Cole said he and the fans are proud of him. MJF reiterated his promise of an AEW title opportunity, but said Cole didn't deserve a match. He deserved the match in the main event of All In 
at Wembley Stadium. So MJF reached out of the ring, grabbed the contract, gave it to Cole. Cole signed it immediately. They said they loved each other. They hugged. Roderick Strong lost his mind backstage, throwing shit around. When the kingdom walked up saying, Cole forgot about his real friends. They were all in Ring of Honor together. It was here that we finally learned All Out will be a pay-per-view starting at 1 p.m. Eastern. Also available, by the way, on Bleacher Report. Uh, I kept expecting a twist coming in this segment. We never got one. With this booking, you know, you have to look at it and go back to what we were just talking about earlier. Does MJF retain and go on to fight CM Punk for what will probably be called the Undisputed Championship at All Out? That's how you get people, I guess. I mean, they didn't say a price for this, but I think they're asking us to spend $50 in consecutive weeks. I think they want $100 from us across two weeks, one for all in, one for all out. And if you're doing MJF and Punk in the main event for the undisputed title, if that's what they call it, then that does make some sense on how you could try to book both shows versus Cole Punk, which has zero build whatsoever. That would make less sense. Because otherwise, it would be Cole winning and presumably losing to Punk one week later as a transitional champion, which is plausible. It just doesn't really make that much sense to me. Obviously, this was an entertaining segment. MJF was gold on the mic. Cole played his role well. Clearly, the strong element is going to come into play. You would think in the all-in match, I assume it could cost Cole the title with them feuding coming out of the show. The other option is Cole cheating to win and Strong either being proud of him or angry at him. A third is Strong linking up with MJF. That seems like the least likely of the three. And then there's one other storyline option that does not involve Roderick Strong, or at least we don't think it does. And that's the fact that MJF repeated two times, I am a scumbag in this segment. He handed Cole a contract. Cole signed it immediately. Didn't look at it, didn't do anything. There could be a stipulation as part of that contract. Let's not forget the show is still basically four weeks away. There could be a stipulation in that contract that hurts Adam Cole that we don't yet know about that gets revealed a little bit down the line. Maybe Strong tries to split them up and MJF says something to him. There's a million ways that it could possibly come out. The good news is that at least as of now, MJF and Cole are still together, even without winning the tag team titles. But I am curious to see how this develops in the coming weeks and whether one of them turns on the other ahead of the actual match. There's not really that much extra analysis to do here, so we will move on, but I'm glad they're together and I do like the way they're doing the storyline. On Dynamite, the Elite fought Jeff Jarrett, Jay Lethal, and Satnam Singh. Karen Jarrett got involved. Sanjay Dutt stopped Omega from hitting one-winged angel on Singh. Brandon Cutler sprayed Karen in the face. Dutt beat him outside. Then the Hardys ran down to attack Sanjay because clearly they were both needed to take him out. Jarrett grabbed a guitar. Then Hangman Adam Page jumped into the ring out of nowhere and took a buckshot lariat. Delivered, I should say, a buckshot lariat. Then Omega hit Lethal with one-winged angel. The crowd was insane for the finish. It was definitely fun, but it was also convoluted as hell. Did the elite really need this much help to beat three mid-card, lower mid-card heels? One of them being Satnam Singh, the other really old Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal. I mean, it seemed like a lot, folks. After the bell, the elite stopped their music and Hangman announced they all re-signed with AEW. This was news that was broken earlier in the day, as if any of these guys were going somewhere else. Omega then did goodbye and goodnight. Coming off the announcement of all four guys being re-signed to multi-year deals, I expected more from them on the show, such as, you know, the start of a storyline for All In, which is less than four weeks away, but it was entertaining and fans liked it. So you have to give credit for that. 
On Dynamite, Chris Jericho and Konosuke Takeshka fought Daniel Garcia and Sammy Guevara. This opened the show without any additional storytelling. Takeshka put Walls of Jericho on Guevara. Sammy later took him out with a shooting star press outside. Garcia blocked Judas Effect and put in a sharpshooter, but Don Callis drilled him in the head with a bat. Jericho was shocked at Callis. He delayed for like 30 seconds, then he decided to cover Garcia for the win. Later backstage, Daddy Magic said JAS would have a mandatory meeting and Jericho was required to be there. Definitely some interesting booking overall. The only part of this that does not play with me is that Jericho is a veteran. He's smarter and more experienced than 99% of the people in the industry. And he's the one letting Callus manipulate him. That really does not track with his character and history, nor does it make sense why he would not want to lead his own faction after seeing so much success over the years. So that part of it annoys me, but this storyline is interesting and it's away from the titles. That's important. On Collision, Andrade El Idolo fought Buddy Matthews in a ladder match. Andrade's mask was hung over the ring here. Andrade had ring gear that kind of made him look like old school Diesel to start this. He had a moonsault off a ladder outside. There was a great sign taunting Buddy in the crowd. It said, Dirty Dom stole your girlfriend. Love that sign. Credit to you. Uh, They did a lot of basic ladder work, but the knees and forearms were really strong, making significant impacts. Andrade hit a sunset flip powerbomb off a ladder into another prop between a rung and the bottom rope. Then he got handcuffed to the ring post. But rather than Buddy just climbing and grabbing the mask, they fucked around and Andrade somehow unlocked the handcuff. Then Buddy stupidly messed with him only to get handcuffed himself. Somehow, bolt cutters were readily available for Buddy. Julia Hart jumped on Andrade, who climbed with her on his back, shoved her off the ladder into Buddy, both of them going through a table propped in the corner. Then he grabbed the mask to win the match. AEW cut away from the end of this match after 10 seconds, so we couldn't even soak in Andrade's win for like a 20-minute battle. I'd probably give this four stars and an A-. minus. That's really only because of the danger. It was really like 3.75 stars and B+. High-level talent, they would have been better served like in a singles match without the ladder stipulation, but I understand that they did it because of the mask. On Dynamite, John Moxley, Pentagon, and Trent Beretta fought in an anything-goes triple threat. Trent put Mox through two tables with a superplex at ringside. Beretta was immediately busted open hard way. Penta put Trent through a table with an avalanche Canadian destroyer, only for Mox to shoulder tackle Penta through a prop table. Mox then pile drove Penta into thumbtacks, where you'd imagine his ass actually took most of the punishment. Then he did a release suplex where Penta definitely took the brunt of it. Mox hit an RKO on Trent, only to eat a seated slam for a broken fall. Mox caught Penta off the ropes for a paradigm shift, with Trent kneeing Mox in the face and then covering Penta to steal the victory. Mox choked Trent out after the bell. Then Blackpool Combat Club came down through the crowd, only to be attacked by best friends. They brawled at ringside. Orange Cassidy hit Superman punch on Mox. And then Chuck Taylor challenged BCC to a parking lot brawl back at Daly's place. So they're trying to recapture that prior parking lot brawl that they had with, I want to say, Santana and Ortiz, if memory serves, which was fantastic. So they're basically trying to say, hey, we're going to do this again and we're going to try to pop everybody. And you know what? Fair enough. You know, it doesn't make any sense in storyline. Not really, but sure. Excalibur literally had to clarify who was challenging who, by the way, given it really wasn't clear. Uh, The match was fun, but given how much all three of these guys had to go through, it kind of felt empty that it resulted in nothing for Trent. Like you would think he just beat Penta and Mox in a triple threat. He earned a TNT title match or an international title match or something. Instead, he picked up a massive victory over these guys only to fight Mox again in a tag team match. It's fine for there to be matches without stakes. Don't get me wrong. 
And the booking made sense because of the tag team triple threat last week. It just felt like with guys of this caliber, something important should have come out of it. And also the whole feud, it, it seems like it's Mox and Orange Cassidy, except that's not being clarified. They're just doing the group stuff. So are they just the leaders or are they going to have a match at all in? And I'm assuming they're going to have a match at all in, but it's not really clear right now. On Rampage, Hikaru Shida fought Nyla Rose. This was the main event, but there was no story at all going into it. Shida hit a Falcon Arrow, but ate a Lariat and a Senton. Then Shida hit an Avalanche Falcon Arrow with Marina Shafir, putting Rose's foot on the bottom rope. Shida drilled her with a kendo stick, countered the Beast Bomb into a Katana for the win. Expected result, mediocre match. The Outcast taunted after the bell. This led to an immediate title match for Shida on Dynamite. So the Women's Championship on the line, Tony Storm against Shida. This was the main event, I guess, AEW was trying to make a point or whatever coming out of last week with the book women's wrestling better sign or whatever it said. Tony hit a DDT off the ropes and a huge hip attack plus another DDT. Sheeta came back with a big knee and a falcon arrow. A kendo stick was slid into the ring, but Sheeta chose to use it on Ruby Soho and Soraya instead of Storm. Tony caught her distracted with the spray to the face and Storm Zero for a false finish. She just straight kicked out of it. Sheeta then trapped Storm's shoulders for the one, two, three to win the women's championship. Now my DVR cut off immediately after the three count. So I didn't see if anything transpired after the bell. But this was definitely a fun piece of booking that likely surprised most everyone watching. My only criticism, and I do think it's legitimate, is this completely came out of nowhere. Sheeta was not built up as a number one contender and randomly got a championship match without even becoming a number one contender. She won three legitimate matches on Rampage, no doubt, but was not even featured on Dynamite or Collision before this. And now she's the new women's champion. Sheeta is immensely over, so that doesn't matter as much as it otherwise might, but it's another example of AEW's carelessness with the women's division. It feels like they wanted to do a title change just because it was episode 200, and this is the one they decided to do because they know Sheeta's over, and they can have it make storyline sense because Jamie Hayter's about to be out of action for a really long time. On top of that, Storm now has the two shortest AEW women's championship range, which for a star of her caliber doesn't really make much sense. Now, all that said, it was a great decision in a vacuum, and the women's division will be better off helmed by Sheeta than Storm, given the outcasts are just dead as doornails. They really should use this as an opportunity to splinter the group, have Storm like join Bullet Club, and have the others do whatever the fuck ever. Definitely excited to see how they move forward here with more consistent and coherent storytelling, hopefully, and I am happy individually for Hikaru Shida. On collision, Darby Allen fought Minoru Suzuki. Darby basically did an open challenge with Suzuki randomly answering. Suzuki caught Coffin Drop with a rear naked chokehold counter, but Darby immediately countered back, folding him over or folding himself over Suzuki, trapping his shoulders for the one, two, three. Smartly booked finish, obviously a big win for Allen over a legend, even if it was random as hell. Christian Cage talked trash on the big screen after the bell, saying the TNT title means more than ever. False. And he said Darby would never touch it again. Okay. I mean, he probably will. On Dynamite, Mogul Affiliates invaded Nick Wayne's gym. AR Fox threw a skateboard at a dude. They quickly kicked a couple guys' asses. Nick went after them, but Swerve broke a glass picture frame over his head. It included a picture of his dad. Swerve laid it on the canvas. Wayne bladed. They made him call Darby with Swerve saying Darby should have called Fox years ago when he got signed to AEW and that this was just the beginning. So this was 50-50 for me. It was half great and half like terrible. Like it was unique and it tried really hard to be real. And I liked that a lot, 
but it simultaneously felt really contrived. As I've said last week, it feels like they're going to extreme lengths to give Wayne an initial storyline with everyone he already knows in wrestling from the Seattle area. But the entire angle because of that kind of comes across forced when they could have just thrown him into something unique and fresh. That said, Swerve and Fox showing aggression here, you know, it's way better than what mogul affiliates used to be. So at least that group is heading in the right direction. On Dynamite, Jack Perry had a scheduled face-to-face with Jerry Lynn. Lynn said he'd fight him, but that would be child abuse, and he's not even clear to wrestle. So instead, he introduced Rob Van Dam, who came out to his classic ECW entrance, Walk by Pantera. Great to hear that. This was leaked earlier Wednesday, but I was surprised because I thought he was under a WWE Legends deal. I guess not. RVD got in the ring, but Perry dipped out. He tried using a chair. RVD avoided it, and again, nothing happened. RVD later backstage challenged Jack for the FTW title next week on Dynamite. There were rumors this was going to be the first all-in match booked, but I guess it's Jungle Boy against 52-year-old RVD on TV instead. This left a lot to be desired, despite me being extremely happy to see RVD. On Rampage, there was a tag team eliminator battle royal. Not exactly sure how this was an eliminator because no one was fighting the champions, but this crowned a number one contender before the tag team titles were defended the next night on Collision. Anyway, the final two were Butcher and Blade and Big Bill and Brian Cage, which made the winners obvious. Blade got taken out with a combo powerbomb lariat. That looked great. Butcher then got eliminated with a combo chokeslam lariat. That looked terrible. It was the right winners, but hardly what I would call an entertaining battle royal. Obviously, this team has no chance of actually winning the titles. On Collision, Samoa Joe fought Gravity in a non-title match. Now, I'm just telling you what commentary told me, okay? Commentary explained Gravity was two wins away from getting a title match against Joe through an ROH TV title eliminator tournament, which I don't even know was going on. If that's the case, why the fuck were they fighting on collision? I said the same thing on SmackDown a couple weeks ago, where Santos Escobar fought Austin Theory in a non-title match for no reason when Santos was in a tournament to become number one contender. It made no sense. This made even less sense. Joe beat him in a couple minutes with a muscle buster, So Gravity got squashed by the champion, but is still competing for the number one contendership for the title. What the fuck are we doing here? Block at zero! On collision, Juice Robinson and the Guns fought Elio Del Vikingo, Darius Martin and Action Andretti. Austin Gunn nearly got his neck snapped on a German suplex. The Guns eventually hit 310 to Yuma on Martin for the win. The match was random, completely meaningless. On Rampage, Kip Sabian fought Commander. This match happened again for no reason whatsoever. Penelope Ford messed with Commander's mask. Sabian hit a slingshot DDT for a near fall. Commander came back with a Canadian Destroyer and a tightrope shooting star press for the win. Exciting finishing sequence, but a completely meaningless match. Then on Dynamite, the ROH tag team titles were on the line for some reason. Aussie Open defending against Vikingo and Commander. Just to recap, Vikingo lost a match. Commander won a singles match both over the weekend, and then they got an ROH tag team title match for no reason whatsoever. And it was another ROH title match on AEW TV again for no reason. Commander did a sick Canadian destroyer jumping off the back of Vikingo, who was on one of the Aussie dude's shoulders. Truly ridiculous spot. Maybe one of the best spots of 2023. It was freaking ridiculous. Uh, The faces hit stereo 450 splashes. Commander then made a huge kick and stereo lariats plus the champion's finisher, I don't know what it's called yet, uh, in a title retention, so the face is lost again. I got nothing for you here. Miro was being interviewed by Tony Schiavone when Aaron Solo, I think, I I wasn't even sure it was Aaron Solo, I think it was, randomly attacked him with a chair for no discernible reason, 
Miro hit him with one chair shot, yelled Shivani, and that was it. This might have been one of the worst backstage segments I've ever seen in professional wrestling. There was zero rhyme or reason to it. Random as hell, stupid, and poorly executed. Zero point zero. On collision, Mercedes Martinez fought Kiara Hogan, another match that happened just randomly. Martinez beat Hogan via submission with a cool bent over chokehold. Chris Statlander then ran down for the save, but dropped her belt like an idiot and turned her back like an idiot, only to take a belt shot from Martinez. Then Willow Nightingale made the save after that. At least there's a mini storyline with Martinez presumably challenging Statlander soon, but it's really the bare minimum storyline. And lastly, the kingdom got a promo package on Rampage praising Tony Khan for buying Ring of Honor. Really, that's what it was. They later beat a couple jobbers in 30 seconds. This was a complete and total waste of television time. That is one big pile of shit. And that, folks, is your breakdown of AEW, Rampage, Collision, and Dynamite from this week. Obviously, we have one match now booked for All In. Seemingly one match we can probably expect being booked for All Out. Actually, let's make that two because we are going to have Luchasaurus and Darby Allin for the TNT title. So we have two shows coming up. One in four weeks, one in five weeks, and three grand total matches announced for those shows. But we did learn that AEW All In is going to be on pay-per-view, available on Bleacher Report. It's going to start at 1 p.m. Presumably, it's going to be 50 bucks, just like All Out. We'll find out. We don't know that 100% for sure. And we also know that All In apparently has 77,000 tickets distributed, which means by the time that show begins, it may well be the most attended wrestling event in history over WrestleMania, over SummerSlam, over anything. Uh, And that is shocking, obviously. We're going to have to see, you know, really what this is all about by the time we get to the show. It's legitimately wild. We did talk about this being a perfect storm situation for AEW, never having a single show in Europe at all, and then doing their first one at Wembley Stadium and making it all in. Very, very smart business from Tony Khan and the company. It's going to be really interesting to see what All In looks like and whether it ends up delivering to the level that having 80,000 people in a stadium needs to deliver, if that makes sense. But folks, like I said, uh, this is a crazy week for me. I don't have much time today, so we're going to wrap up the show real quick. I appreciate all of you listening. As always, don't forget to listen to the WWE SummerSlam Ultimate Preview already in your podcast feed now that this show is over. And don't forget on Saturday to join us for our WWE SummerSlam Instant Reaction. We will have a live pre-show on Twitter spaces at Getting Overcast. Also pre and post-show polls for SummerSlam on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And that means there's only a few reminders left as we get out of the show here. First, it's all about the five. It is all about the five here at Getting Over. Please leave us five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. On Apple, if you leave a five-star written review, we will read it live right here on the show. Of course, follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis, highlights, and all the stuff I just mentioned about SummerSlam. And please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for five bucks per month or 50 bucks for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Support the Silver King, support Vintage, support the continuation of this show. Visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over and sign up. You also get bonus audio and news posts every single week. The next news post is coming out on Friday. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. We will be back on Saturday 
with that WWE SummerSlam instant reaction. With that, it is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.